Hello, this is Joshua Bell with A Kilt in the Cloth. This was my sermon for March 6, 2022, entitled, The Three Temptations of Christ. I hope you enjoy, and God bless. My scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Uh, you can find it in the New Testament section on page 58. Now Jesus... Fully of the Holy, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord God to, your, to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. One of the things that's fascinating is, is that when I put these sermons together, I come to this idea that uh, I, I, have, I write these notes. Uh, this is how I'm going to do it, and I, I put these footnotes on it and stuff so that we can put it on the thing, and so that we, you know, we're not doing anything you're, uh, unethical. And then you get to the sermon, and you're like, I don't want to preach that at all. Uh, but except for, I like this passage of Scripture. And as I told the 815 service, I, uh, I apologized to Floyd, because uh, since November, uh, at every camp out we've been on, Floyd has had to hear about the Roman Empire. And uh, now he gets to hear about it not once, but twice in the same Sunday. So, uh, again, I apologize to you, Floyd, uh, but you're stuck with me. So, um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about this, this understanding of the Gospel of Luke. And, and I want you to focus specifically on the actual temptations that are taking place uh, for the audience of the first century. Well, for one... Uh, let's talk about the very first one. It's it's 100% about food scarcity. Uh, this is a time and a, and a place that everyone that you basically knew was starving. Um, they, they, they barely had enough food to, to feed themselves, let alone their families. Uh, Rome was completely in power, and they, they allowed you to have food. How much they allowed you to have was up to you and how much you worked for them. 
You know, Rome was uh, powerful in the sense of the ways that they did things, but the way that you rule a people is the way that you control the, the, the inflow of the food and the economy. And it's fascinating when you look back at it historically that while Rome was known for building these massive urban cities and bring things like aqueducts and sewage systems, the, the sewage system was so neat that it ran right smack dab in front of your homes and, and uh, you didn't have to worry about those things because you were starving to death and you were probably going to die starving to death anyway. This is, this is a big deal, and I'm, and I'm not trying to be flippant about it. This is why uh, the, the average death rate was, if you made it to 60, it was a miracle. The infant mortality rate was extremely through the roof. And to think about it in the sense of that, let's say uh, most of the, the listeners of the first century would look at this devil as the empire, maybe even as Caesar itself. And what is the first thing he does? He challenges, Satan challenges Jesus into saying, take this stone and turn it into bread because I know you're starving. Now Jesus is brilliant. He starts off and he says, but we don't live off of bread alone. We don't live off of bread alone. It, it, it doesn't matter what you give to me in the aspect of the empire I have something more powerful than anything that you could bring to me. It's fascinating how this works. The second part of this, it's pretty intense. If you, if you put Satan in the same category as the empire, the very first thing is Satan then offers to Jesus all of the empire, everything that you can see, because Rome was gigantic, right? And in this process, he says, I will give you authority over this. And you can just hear it in the back of his head. And it's like, yeah, you've been given this power and you have the ability to give me this authority. But you can hear Jesus in the back kind of laughing to himself saying, yeah, but you didn't create it. You didn't breathe Ruach into it and make it, make it so. You took it with power. And authority. And then Satan says, but if you just worship me, I will do this. I, I don't worship you. I worship something beyond your understanding. You can't buy my power. This is hard. And then thirdly, this is the one that's hardest, folks. Satan then puts him on top of the pinnacle of the temple. Now, why is this important, you might ask? In the first century, this is the place where God stepped foot on earth. It was literally the place that God came once a year to forgive all of their sins with their burnt offerings. And it is now destroyed. And Satan says, I'm going to put you on top of this. And then instead of saying anything about the place of worship, he says, why don't you throw yourself off this building? Take your life. Because you know, and then he uses scripture, right? Because God wouldn't let anything happen to you, O oh Jesus. God would have his angels catch you before you even stubbed your toe. And then Jesus responds just brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, you know scripture, obviously. But we don't test God. 
really hard though, right? These are the things of life. And it's hard for us to hear this in the 21st century, you know, in the sense that we have this conversation about God and Jesus. And the very first thing he talks about is food scarcity, which we know very little of. We might talk about people that are hungry, and we might talk about those that are are starving even in our community. And and folks, it really is a thing that there are people in in our own big thriving metropolis of Perry that are without food just right as we speak. And yet, we still have an abundance. There shouldn't be anybody starving, is my argument. And yet there is. But we've learned how to move past some of this stuff. There isn't an empire keeping its thumb on us, keeping the food and everything else away from us. (coughs) I think the part that's the second part of this is the one that we really struggle with. Probably not as much as the third, but we're going to get there. The second part is the authority, right? We have the authority and the power of everything that's around us. You, you have been given these, these rights in the United States that are completely different than the Roman Empire. Anytime somebody wants to compare us to the Roman Empire, you say, well, yeah, there are parts of it that are similar, but you have a constitution and bill of rights where they did not. <coughs> and one of the things that's extremely important to point out the difference here is is that in the midst of this, these are human-made authorities and powers that were taken by force, by violence, by pushing their power into other places. It's not that far off for us to understand and can relate to. We see this with our own very eyes today. It's an amazing passage of Scripture, but the thing that's important for us is that last part. You notice that he didn't talk about worship in that place of the pinnacle, because the, the temple is gone. You shall not test the Lord your God. And I think that's why... One of the things that I loved about the way that we created this worship service this morning is is the hymns speak the message for us. Dash yourself off this building and you will be caught by the wings of angels. Nothing will hurt you. But the part we don't understand is, is that somehow, somewhere down the road... We've relinquished our own power. We have succumbed to these own temptations. <clears throat> Lent is designed specifically for the Christian church in the sense of we are trying to look in, introspectively to find those things that keep us away from God and to build ourselves closer to a relationship with God that supersedes anything that the world wants to throw at us. And yet, we fail every single day. 
you ask, well, how do I fail? When you see those that are hungry, and we walk past them. When we see people that we could have an effect on, and, and, and maybe even be a part of their life, and we choose to not let that happen. And then we take and allow the world to dictate to us how it is that what we are supposed to be doing needs to be put aside. Let me give you an example. When I first started in youth ministry, I probably was uh, 90% passion, 10% brain. And I, and I would get yell, I would yell, scream, and holler at, at, uh, at things, and I would stand in front of the youth group and their parents, and I would just, I would, like I said, 90% passion, 10% brain. I, I remember this very clearly. Like, for an example, uh, one time I was told, because I was the youth minister at a church, that I was, it was my job to dress up as the Easter bunny for the Easter egg hunt. And I said, uh, no, that's not happening. And they're like, well, why not? Well, first off, I don't like the Easter Bunny. Uh, and without going into details, because we have children, uh, I, I said, I'm not going to do that at church. As a youth ministry thing, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And what on God's green earth makes you think that I can fit into that Easter Bunny outfit? Well, you've got to do it, Josh. No, I don't. Yes, yes, you do. Okay. So I put the Easter Bunny outfit, of course, it wouldn't zip up. You know, I'm like, yeah, this is your fault, not mine. And instead of walking to the place, I got on my motorcycle and went to the place. So the Easter Bunny driving down the road with my ears flopping all over the place, pulled up to the church member's house, and I got off the motorcycle and said, all right, kids, let's go find our Easter eggs. And the kids wanted to play with my motorcycle more than that, so... But somewhere along the line, we told ourselves that these things are more important than what we do on Sunday mornings. You see? We even held it over people. You have to do this because this is what we do in the name of God. The example I used in the 815 service in the other moment of passion as a youth minister was, it, I remember the time. I mean, I, mean I, I remember it distinctly when all of a sudden athletics started to take over Sunday mornings. Do you remember this? It was like literally the blink of an eye. They, 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 they started to say that if, if you don't show up to play on your team, you will be punished. You don't get to go to church on Sunday. And the kids would say, well, I, I got to go to church on Sunday. And, and the coach would say, well, if you don't show up to practice, you practice, not the game practice that we have during 1030 on Sunday morning. If you don't show up to practice, you don't get to play. So what do you think their choice was? They went to practice. Their parents allowed it. Our grandparents allowed it. Our aunts and uncles encouraged it. Why? Because we want to see our teams be superstars. All of them are going to play professional curling someday. They're all going to be the most professional ping pong player on the planet. And the reality of this 1% idea 
for some reason or another, took over the place of what we do on Sunday morning as important. So we dashed ourselves off the building, knowing that God would catch us on the other end. And we relinquished our religious authority to the world. C.S. Lewis writes in the book called The Screwtape Letters, he's got this main character by the name of Wormwood, who is kind of a demon or the Satan kind of character. And he writes this, and I love this imagery because this was written before the sports thing took over, right? And he writes, this is Wormwood's perspective, this is what he says, of the divine design. He, God, really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their will, wills freely conform to his. Here's what Wormwood's perspective is. While we want cattle who can finally become food, he wants servants who can finally become sons we want to suck in, he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. See, the image isn't that far removed from our own culture and our own understanding. We continue to fail the temptations of Satan or the world. Now, here's the part I want us to take from this as we come to a close. I think God knows that we're going to make mistakes on a regular basis. I think God knows that we are not perfect and that, that we, we're not going to become perfect. And it's not something that you can strive to be. The goal then needs to be, how do we live as imperfect human beings in the image of Christ? And we hope that in some small way that we've raised our children to, to know the difference between what is godly and what is worldly. And when they choose the other, hopefully we can get them back in some way or another. Not, not into the way that we see it, you see. I, I think that's another misconception. I don't think that God intended for us to all be uh, automatons or robots believing in God exactly the same way but I do believe that we are all supposed to acknowledge that Jesus is Christ and our Savior and in that moment we also believe that our sins are forgiven and that God still loves us when we make those different choices and when we succumb to the temptations that there's a way back and here's the last part I want you to gather, church. is that you're not alone in this journey. Jesus was having this temptation experience all by Jesus himself. But you, on the other hand, have a community of faith. You have people that also believe in Jesus Christ. And in those moments when we feel the darkest, scariest, dankest days of the soul, there's a group of people that will pray with you. 
There's a group of people that will pray for you. And there's a group of people that will walk alongside with you. So what is Lent about? Lent is that introspective moment for us to recognize that we are not alone in this journey. And that we are going to fail a lot. But that God gives us Jesus for proof that God loves us and calls us every chance we can in right relationship with God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.